Uh, welcome to It Just So Happened. I'm Richard Paulson, stand-up comedian and very unprofessional historian. In this show, we'll explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 22nd of July. That's before we delve into some of the history of the town where today's show is taking place. We are in Bedfordshire. Yes, it's Bedford! We are appearing as part of the Bedford Fringe Festival, mimicking the way the famous Edinburgh Fringe is sometimes called Ed Fringe. The festival calls itself the Bed Fringe, making this festival especially popular with narcoleptics and teenagers. This show is being recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast. But we also have a live audience with us in the studio theatre. Some of us have just taken their seats now. Uh, at the performing arts space, the Quarry Theatre at St Luke's. Talking of quarries, who did we manage to dig up for this podcast? Well, let's find out as I introduce tonight's panellists as they take their seats. So we welcome Paul Kerr. Ben Evelyn. John Rams. And Simon Munnery. Our first guest is Paul Kerr. Now, Paul is a Bedfordian. Uh, Paul started out as a stand-up comedian performing at open mics whilst living in Hong Kong in 2014. He's performed at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival with the Birmingham Footnotes Comedy Society and is currently the host of the Relevant Records Comedy Night in Cambridge. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. So, when researching uh, an historical event to talk about this evening, uh, my main concern was finding something that I could actually talk about. Uh, because when writing my jokes, uh, it's not normally uh, often the case that I have to research who St. Dionysus is, uh, or what the Treaty of Vienna actually says. <laughs> so as a rule, I try to stay away from treaty-based jokes. <laughs> In my opinion, the academic effort is not worth the comedic. <laughs> so you'll understand my delight when I found out that on this day in 1918, 504 sheep were killed by lightning in the Wasatch National Park in Utah. <laughs> now I say delight, and it's only delight because I know what sheep are, I don't know what lightning is. I'm already onto a winner. So now, before I begin, I need to make a disclaimer because I've had to improvise the facts slightly. Like any historian worth his comb over, I've made some things up. <laughs> Not all of it though, the sheep were killed by lightning and there were 504 of them. And honestly, my heart goes out to whoever had to count those sheep. That must have been a tiring job. Now there isn't much documented about the event, for example, who the farmer was. And after an extensive 15-minute Google search, I found nothing more than the bare-bone facts. And rightly so, as this sort of thing seemed to happen all too often. During a rainstorm, large herds of animals swarm together for warmth and shelter. Lightning comes, and there's lamb chops for dinner. <laughs> Big whoop, who cares? In fact, merely four days before today, on the 18th of July, 1918, 654 sheep were killed by lightning in the American Fort Canyon. That's 1,158 sheep in four days. That was a bad week to be a sheep in America. And every year, the head sheep commemorates both these tragedies by bleating the electric six classics, danger, danger, high voltage. It's a very moving ceremony. And as I've said, some of this is made up. <laughs> but even still, was frying that hundreds of innocent sheep might not, might not have reshaped the political landscape 
or drew new dividing lines between countries and empires, I think it's worth taking a closer look. So, what actually happened? Well, the story has it that one summer evening in the Wasatch National Park, hundreds of sheep stood grazing merrily in the pasture, enjoying what the land had to offer. Then suddenly, the heavens opened, and all the sheep huddled together. Now, after some research, and I did do some, I found that the sheep are believed to have a sixth sense for predicting the weather. Much like cows sit down when it's about to rain, sheep huddle together for warmth when it, when the, before the rain arrives. Coincidentally, I also have a sixth sense for predicting when someone is going to say something racist at a dinner party. <laughs> if you find me under the table shoving breadsticks in my ears, you'll know it's coming. <laughs> and then the lightning came. And because of the close proximity of all the sheep, the current flowed through them all, ending their tiresome life as mortal sheep, and beginning their new life as clouds in heaven. <laughs> Not for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> the close proximity is important to note, though, as it is how all the sheep died from the bolt of lightning. In fact, in 2008, 52 cows died in Uruguay after a nearby fence was struck by lightning. Safety in numbers. Think again. <laughs> so that's the nuts and bolts of it. And unfortunately, after about another 15-minute Google search last night, there seems to be no more information on the event itself. So this is where the real historical analysis begins. And I start making assumptions. <laughs> so the farmer's reaction. Now, I wonder what the farmer's reaction was. He may not have heard the storm. He may have been a heavy sleeper. We just don't know. But what happened overnight I imagine his first thought when he went out into the field was that perhaps they'd all decided to have one big group spoon <laughs> and hadn't decided to unspoon. Or that someone had left a large pile of very burnt popcorn on his field. Either or, we don't know. But what do you do when you potentially you've lost your entire livelihood in a single moment? Does sheep insurance even cover genocide by lightning? And if this was an act of God, why the sheep? Those poor, innocent creatures, they've done nothing wrong. If you want to talk about religious malice throughout history, this event, in my opinion, overshadows the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition combined. <laughs> now, the aftermath. What a natural, uh, with a natural disaster on such a scale as this one, there must be questions regarding the aftermath of the event. I wonder what happened to all that wool. <laughs> I mean, I'm no scientist, but if they made light-up Christmas jumpers out of that wool, would you need batteries? <laughs> and how can we avoid this in the future? Perhaps if they had one of the sheep wear a conductive suit with a lightning rod on its head, they would all be fine. You know, to make it fair, they could rotate the suit each week. Here, Barry, it's your turn. Isn't it just started being rainy season? Tough luck, Baz. <laughs> Maybe we could have all given them rubber sole shoes. But I don't actually know how profitable sheep farming was in 1918 Utah. But I doubt you could afford 2016 pairs of Doc Martens. <laughs> or even whether Doc Martens existed in 1918. And finally, what happened to the shepherd? Did he start from scratch again? Or rebuild his new life with a new purpose? Perhaps he learned the banjo and started travelling around the bars of Utah, singing weary tunes about the thunderstorm that claimed his herd. <laughs> Did he? We don't know. Because as I've stated previously, there's very little on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So whilst these events aren't uncommon, it's still worth noting it as an important event on this particular day. We may not know the shepherd's name or whether he eventually made it big as Utah's next rock star, but what we do know is this. 101 years ago today, the state of Utah had one of the largest naturally occurring barbecues in history. <laughs> and I think that's worth remembering. It's often said that to learn about history is to learn from the mistakes of the past. So, what are the lessons here? It seems to me, don't act like a sheep. But we already know this. We've been taught this by parents and primary school teachers, but it seems so self-evident. Don't be a sheep, Paul. If Jordan jumped off a cliff, would you? No. He'd make me go first. <laughs> but I think we can learn a lot from these 504 sheep. Even in times of chaos and madness, the instinctual reaction we all have to group together for safety may not be the best course of action. You know who didn't get electrocuted that night? The shepherd. Be the shepherd, Bedford. <laughs> be the shepherd. Thank you very much. If you didn't realise before, you'll now appreciate that a lot of the history in this show is quite woolly. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I made that up on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 22nd of July, 1274, Henry I of Navarre died. Now, Henry was the youngest son of Theobald I of Navarre and Margaret of Bourbon. Henry succeeded to the thrones of the Kingdom of Navarre and County of Champagne upon Theobald II's death in December 1270. Now, by his marriage to Blanche, daughter of Robert I, you keep him up, of Artois, and niece of Louis IX of France, he had one daughter, Joan, whom by the convention of one year, he promised to one of the two sons of Edward I of England, Henry and Alfonso. Keep him up. Uh, this would have led to a union of his dominions with English Gascony, but it came to nothing. King Henry I died on this day in 1274. Both the English princes died in the next decade, and Joan was married in 1284 to the future Philip IV of France. Now, Henry I was also known as Henry Le Gros, literally Henry the Fat. The generally received accounts of the time say he was suffocated by his own fat. Perhaps unsurprising, given that his mother was Margaret of Bourbon, and Henry was also the Count of Champagne and Brie. <laughs> so, our second guest is Ben Aveling. Now, Ben is a local businessman as well as a comedian, and as a proud father says, that the best thing about his children is the hours of material it gives him for free. <laughs> Over to Ben. Good evening, everybody. Tonight, I talk about O.J. Simpson. Have we all heard of him? Yes. It's a good start. Okay, I'm going to take you straight in as it comes. So let's look at the evidence, and I'm going to try my best to do accents, but it will not be his and it will not be mine. <laughs> but it will distinguish the differences, into, yeah, so we can find out what's, who's saying what. So you can imagine the prosecution, or we're trying to analyse what's going on and his response. And I'll do it the best way I can. So let's look at the evidence. Your ex-wife and new partner are stabbed to death at their home and you have a history of domestic violence towards her, including a plea of no contest in court. OJ? Well, it's a war under the bridge, isn't it? <laughs> okay. A glove was found at the murder scene with both types of blood on. And the other glove was found at your estate, also with blood on. OJ? Well, could have been a lap dancer's glove. Anyway, you should always trust a man in the public eye that wears one glove. <laughs> Jam on. 
Okay, in, this, in that case, okay. A neighbour testified that she saw you driving away from the murder scene on the night of the murders. And this is actually an important fact, which we'll come back to later. Hey, it might have been my car, but I have a feeling the driver had a goatee and a moustache. Thank for that one, guys. <laughs> anyway, she sold the story, so you can't use it if the story's been sold. Okay, so then a man said he sold you a 15-inch German-made knife, just like the murder weapon, literally just like the murder weapon, three weeks prior to the killings. OJ, uh, he sold his story too, so you can't use it. It's a shame, isn't it? <laughs> Bloodstains from the crime scene were found on your car, in, sorry, in your car boot, on your socks, in your house, on your driveway. OJ, ha, you know ex-wives, always tripping and cutting themselves in your house, in the boot of the car, and their feet, you know, ha, easily done. Perhaps she was doing it digging for my gold. I ain't saying she's a gold digger. But she ain't messing with no broke bloke. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, then, OJ. You evaded arrest from the police, led them on a pursuit which was watched by 95 million people. Wow, I just thought we were filming for the new Naked Gun movie, man. <laughs> Have you seen it? The plot's great. There's loads of people trying to take me down, but I get away with it. <laughs> yes, everybody, today, 1994, was the day that OJ Simpson pleaded... Wait for it. Absolutely, 100% not guilty was his actual plea. And the reason that I love that is because it, it, it reminds me of my children. It's a bit like my kids. Boys, who ate the last biscuit? And it's absolutely 100% not me, Dad. <laughs> you know it was them, really. Just going to turn the page over after that one, baby. <laughs> so, in the lead-up to this big plea in court, OJ had evaded arrest. And the whole nation had watched the pursuit on television. I think I can't remember the specifics, but cut in during like the Super Bowl or something. It was ridiculous. Helicopters following the pursuit had to stop to refuel as it went on for so long. <laughs> Seriously, it's chopping it. That's a bad one. <laughs> That's not on here. My wife will let that one make the cut. <laughs> However, brilliant. Thanks, Bedford. <laughs> However, what I think is most interesting here is what was found in the back of the car when the police finally caught him. Okay, picture the scene in a frenzied state. Okay, ready to run. Along with the accomplice, you have the foresight to grab some items just in case you manage to get away and escape. $8,000 in cash. Yeah? Yeah. yeah? Change of clothes. Yeah. Sweaty. Discard. Yeah. Great. Family photos. <coughs> Not sure if he likes his family that much, but whatever. <laughs> Passport. Perhaps another good one. 357 Magnum and Bedford. That's not an ice cream. <laughs> Last but no least, I told you to bank it. A fake goatee and moustache <laughs> found in the back of his car. But what's funnier than the face he had, sorry, that, that, that he had the sense to grab a fake goatee and moustache is that he had one lying around to grab. <laughs> so I'm just going to pop to the joke shop before I go and commit this crime. Not guilty. <laughs> so, what useful items to grab? And, okay, so this actually reminds me of our English answer, which is uh, to, oh, sorry, our English answer to OJ, which is Raoul Moat. Remember the, the Raoul Moat scandal, the guy that had the standoff with the police? Okay, so he similarly killed his ex-wife, her partner, and a policeman. He could be outdone by the Americans. You know, try to, <laughs> always try and do a bit more. And then he started an armed standoff with the police, and he was probably thinking that, well, OJ got off. All I need to do is stay alive, get that good lawyer like OJ did, and I'm home and dry. 
But unfortunately, as we all know, up shows Gaza. <laughs> How are you, Mum? How are you doing? I tried an accent. Borderline Welsh. Okay, so he turns up with a useful bag of items that he's impulsively grabbed, which we probably wouldn't. I can remind you, Bedford, of what those were. A can of lager. Yeah, you know. Bedford Newcastle. A phone, a coat, a fishing rod, and some chicken. <laughs> Raoul probably turned the cut on himself <laughs> because of this, really. Poor old Gazza. But I like to think that his final thoughts were, why do I need chicken when I have a fishing rod? Or... I asked the lawyer, Cochrane, not Newcastle's biggest cokehead. <laughs> so the colossal hype around the OJ trial got me thinking that how things are so different here in the UK compared to the USA. In America, when the verdict was announced, President Bill Clinton was on standby for riots. This is serious, serious stuff. Long distance calls were down by 58%. The New York Stock Exchange decreased by 41%. And water usage nationally decreased because of this, okay? An estimated $480 million was lost in productivity, for example, people not turning up the next day to work. This is crazy, okay? It was all about big displays of, I'm absolutely 100% not guilty. Whereas in this country, we would just get on to look east, and it would go, Mr Simpson pleaded not guilty. That's a picture of the old Bailey. <laughs> I, did, I did decide to... Well, I was going to bring the pictures, but I didn't know if they'd work or not, but that uh, suggests they didn't. <laughs> in, the, <laughs> in the UK, all we would want to know is what his opinion on Brexit was, and that's how we all make our minds up anyway. But in the USA, this is a demonstration of how people can use their money to be above the law, literally get away with murder. But in the UK, people use their power, money and influence to, say, rent porn films and hotel rooms, <laughs> buy duck houses, get their moats cleaned, <laughs> Buy some Tudor mock cladding, mock Tudor cladding, however you want to put it. Oh, so, sorry, sorry. I should say that's our money for that. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I've <laughs> misread that. Ah, the MP expenses scandal. That's the most fun I've had since telling OJ we were filming Naked Gun 4. <laughs> of course, we all know how the trial ended. OJ's lawyers convinced the jury that there was reasonable doubt. There's nothing new to OJ there, of course, as his dad was famous for being a drag queen, so I'm sure there's always reasonable doubt in the house. <laughs> so to conclude, what do I think? Guilty? Not guilty? Absolutely 100% not guilty? We'll never know for sure, but just like OJ, I'll take a stab in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Uh, spoonerism, I'm sure as we know, is a slip of the tongue in which corresponding consonants, vowels or morphemes are switched between two words in a phrase. So, for example, the title of the rock band Butthole Surfers' fourth studio album was Hairway to Stephen, a spoonerism <laughs> of the Led Zeppelin classic Stairway to Heaven. Now, spoonerisms acquired their name thanks to William Archibald Spooner, who frequently misspoke in often hilarious ways. He was born on this day in 1844 in London. He went to school in Oswestry and was an avid rower and received a first in classics. As warden of New College Oxford, he and his wife hosted dinner parties and the guests included Marconi and Elgar. He himself disliked having spoonerisms named after him, but he was so good at them. Some examples attributed to Spooner, uh, most of them spuriously admittedly, but they include uh, three cheers for our queer old Dean. <laughs> <laughs>
Is it customary to cuss the bride? <laughs> the Lord is a shoving leopard. <laughs> a blushing crow. Do you have to think what these were meant to be? It's a crushing blade. Uh, a well-boiled icicle, which should have been a well-oiled bicycle, uh, is the bean dizzy. And you have hissed all my mystery lectures. You've tasted a whole worm. Please leave Oxford on the next town drain. <laughs> now, his muddled mind led him to once ask someone, uh, was it you or your brother who was killed in the Great War? <laughs> and he also had slips of action. So when he spilt salt on a tablecloth, he added drops of claret to it so it could be gathered up into a heap. Spooner's attitude to the deaths of old German members of college during World War I caused some controversy because when news of a casualty reached him, he insisted on posting their name alongside the list of college's war dead on the chapel door, saying, well, they too are members of the college and they too have given their lives for their country. He retired as warden in 1924 and died in 1930, but his memory lives on. <laughs> now to our third guest, who is John Rounds. Now, John was a guest in our very first podcast in Brighton in May. Now, John is a stand-up comedian and has written for Radio 4 Extra, he tells me. Now, John isn't widely known in the UK yet, but he has heard that the Rams name has some currency in South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> the year was 1587. For context, the year that Mary, Queen of Scots, was executed, when the Rose Theatre that premiered many of Shakespeare's plays was built, and the year that my mother started cooking the vegetables for next year's Christmas dinner. <laughs> On this day in 1587, John White landed in the, uh, the New World and formed the ill-fated Roanoke Colony. Many of the colonists objected to the name the ill-fated Roanoke Colony, <laughs> uh, and sadly it proved to be all too accurate. Uh, to give some background behind there, uh, John White was working under Sir Walter Raleigh, who had been given a mandate by the Queen to set up colonies in America as a way of carrying on the traditional British values of making naval attacks against Spain. Uh, this was actually the second attempt to make a colony at Roanoke. Uh, the first was uh, a colony started by a man called Richard Granville, uh, who had lots of trouble, uh, as you can tell by the fact it was the first doomed Roanoke colony. Uh, they even had trouble getting over there. Uh, Granville had made his way to the New World on five ships, uh, Tiger, Roebuck, Red Lion, Elizabeth and Dorothy, and on the journey over, during bad weather, the ships had gotten separated. Now, fortunately, they had prepared for this and established a kind of buddy system for ships, which meant that they were later able to rejoin together uh, as a fleet. Uh, and since that day, it has been luck for sailors to be a friend of Dorothy. <laughs> uh, this first colony uh, came into some trouble uh, with a disagreement with the natives. Natives, they thought, had stolen a silver cup and the natives took some exception to being accused of this. Although, to be fair, it wasn't so much the fact of the accusation that they didn't like, more the way that the accusation took the form of uh, sacking and burning their villages. <laughs> um, Granville felt responsible for the way that this colony hadn't worked and did the only honourable thing of uh, leaving all the colonists there with no food and surrounded by hostile natives as he made his way back to England. Uh, Later, uh, those natives were recovered and brought back to England by Sir Francis Drake. Uh, and it's this trip back uh, where Drake brought back tobacco, maize and potatoes, which obviously Drake is, is famed for, uh, for bringing to, to the, the old world, as it were. 
Now, I mentioned earlier on Raleigh was the sponsor of these journeys, but didn't actually bring those things back. Raleigh never set foot in North America. He was in, more interested in South America and explored in detail the Orinoco River. So the only thing he brought us was Enya and a Womble. <laughs> uh, but we go back to John White's colony. Uh, so John White's people, uh, sorry, I'll start again. Uh, White's people um, <laughs> went into this land, declared it as their own, displaced the native people, and set up home. Uh, a sentence which can be true if you take out one letter for most of history. John White was not just the, the leader of the colony, he was also a father, and very soon after landing was a grandfather. Uh, John White was the grandfather of Virginia Dare, who was uh, historically known as the first person born in America. Uh, admittedly, this was a couple of centuries before America existed, so that's quite an achievement. <laughs> but she was obviously the, in the, the colonies, the new world that is now known as America, she's the first person born there. Uh, I mean, apart from uh, Snorri Thorfinnsson, a Icelandic person who was born there before, uh, and a Spanish person who was born there before, and every single Native American. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but of course, she was the first white English-speaking person born in America, and for history, that's all that counts. <laughs> Virginia Dale was born on the 18th of August, so obviously just uh, the same year, so from this point, only a few weeks after they landed. Uh, and then John White returned uh, to England looking for more supplies on the 27th of August, 10 days after the birth of his granddaughter. There is a man who does not like christenings. <laughs> uh, but John White decided to make the trip back to England uh, for, for supplies and help, uh, doing the honourable thing of leaving his family and his colonists on an island with no food, surrounded by hostile natives. <laughs> um, White uh, encountered problems on the journeys to England and back to uh, America. It took three years uh, to get back to his colony and his family. Uh, when he got back to the colony, all the colonists were gone. Uh, the Roanoke colony was empty. If only they hadn't called it the doomed Roanoke colony. <laughs> it may have been different, but the colony was empty. But there were no signs of struggle, there were no bodies, so no, nothing left behind. It's one of the biggest mysteries in American history, what happened. There were no clues other than carved into a post near the colony, the word Croatoan carved into a post, and that was the only thing no one has ever been able to figure out what that meant. Not the other colonists, not the Spanish colonists, not the local native of Crow tribe called the Croatoan who lived on Croatoan Island. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> can understand what this obscure blue might have meant. Uh, but if you go to Croatoan Island and speak to the natives there, you will find some suspiciously white-looking, cockney-sounding natives <laughs> uh, who are aware of the important historical fact that England treat their own poor almost as badly as they treat foreigners. <laughs> Thank you very much. John Rams. Um, I'm actually going to move straight on to our fourth guest rather than doing uh, one of my segues because uh, you can hear too much of me, I believe. So uh, we'll go on to our fourth guest straight away. So that's Simon Munnery. Uh, back in the day, uh, I read that Simon programmed video games, including several for the ZX81. We did have the ZX81 in our house, but anyway, that's by the way, that's for later. Uh, he's better known as a master of satirical and surreal comedy who has performed as himself and as Alan Parker, Urban Warrior, and The League Against Tedium, and alongside acts such as Steve Coogan, Stuart Lee, and Johnny Vegas. His show Attention Scum featured on BBC Radio 1 and also on BBC Two. Uh, over to you, Simon. Thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, let's play musical statues. Thank <laughs> you. 
good. <laughs> Look through to the second round. <laughs> it's a draw. <laughs> well, uh, on this day, 22nd of July, uh, in uh, the Kingdom of Jerusalem was founded, a crusader state established in the southern Levant by Godfrey of Bouillon. Uh, who was a good friend of Eric of Oxocube <laughs> in uh, 1099. I don't know, you know that's a bargain. <laughs> the kingdom lasted nearly 200 years, from 1099 until 1291, when the last remaining possession, Acre, quite a small place, uh, was destroyed by the Mamluks. <laughs> you know, the way a mother looks could just... <laughs> <laughs> sort of withering look a mother can do will just destroy a place. Um, its history is divided into two distinct periods. Distinct periods. The first kingdom of Jerusalem lasted from 1099 to 1187 when it was almost entirely overrun by Saladin. Um, that's a salad. <laughs> After the subsequent third crusade, the kingdom was re-established in Acre in 1192 and lasted until that city of destruction. Uh, yes, Godfrey of Bouillon. What a name. Uh, Godfrey, of course, of Guillaume was named after the, uh, the oldest character in Dad's Army. <laughs> <laughs> Had a sister called Dolly. <laughs> right. Well, it's, uh, it's hard to imagine uh, these days going on a crusade. Is they've really dropped out of fashion. Strange they left it till 1099. Uh, that's, that's over a thousand, a thousand, nearly 1,000. They didn't wait for the anniversary either, 1,100 years. No, let's get in early. And, uh, oh, well, come on, we haven't got Jerusalem, have we? Let's get that back. Uh, of course, different times, then people were more religious. Um, whatever it says in the Bible, the truth remains. You can read the Bible, dismiss it as nonsense if you like. Uh, you can dismiss it as nonsense without reading it at the same time if you prefer. <laughs> I myself often compare myself to Jesus. I've come to the conclusion I'm not as good. <laughs> but whatever you think about Jesus now, if you're there at the time, I think you'd have found him slightly irritating. <laughs> all his life he went, stop what you're doing, follow me. Stop what you're doing, stop what you're doing, follow me. To right the end he goes, you can't follow me anymore, I'm going to be dad's bye. <laughs> uh, at one point someone said to him I would follow you Lord but my father's just died and I have to bury him and Jesus uttered the immortal line let the dead bury their dead <laughs> I mean <laughs> I mean, the child he might have thought was a little bit insensitive <laughs> as well as impractical I mean, <laughs> how <laughs> moving on he also said, another one of my favourite Jesus one-liners, is uh, who by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? Who by thinking about it can make himself taller? And I wish I'd been there, because I'd have gone, Lord, what about stilts? <laughs> so I think it'd be nice if there been a pedantic disciple following him. <laughs> Doubting Thomas, pedantic Alf. <laughs> but famously, one of Jesus' most famous is uh, love, love your enemy and um, uh, turn the other cheek. So the idea of having a crusade, in, you know, just why they thought that was right. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, uh, you know, onto the um, onward Christian soul. They didn't sing that, it was only 1877 that was invented. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. Did you just stop? Sort of Christian soul with the cross of Jesus going on before. It's just, um, just a thought, if you are uh, leading an army to battle, probably best not to have your... You, you, you cross at the front. 
Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> we're thinking of starting a crusade. <laughs> um, okay, should we carry on? Godfrey of Bouillon. Uh, he was a Frankish knight, so, you know, quite frank. <laughs> and uh, one of the first crusade. And he was uh, the Lord of Bouillon, so uh, very good at making uh, broth. <laughs> and from 1076, he was also the Duke of Lower Lorraine, uh, next to Quiche Lorraine. <laughs> and um, after a successful siege, he became the first ruler of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. He refused the title of king because he believed that the true king of, G of Jerusalem was Jesus Christ. And he preferred, he preferred the title of advocate, uh, i.e. protector and defender of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the uh, tomb where Jesus was buried. Um, and he got out of it. <laughs> this apologist took him three days, but he did it. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, the rest is history. <laughs> oh, uh, on the subject of history, those doomed to repeat the lessons of history are history teachers. <laughs> uh, so we talked about various events related to the 22nd of July on this day, but we now come to the second half of the show where we uncover some alternative histories about Bedford. Now, for the research I've done, Bedford, it appears, gets its name from Bedder, the name of a Saxon chief. And with the settlement being situated at a crossing of the River Great Ouse, it was decided to call it Bedder Ford. Uh, but people kept turning up looking for the clinic. <laughs> so the name was shortened to Bedford. Uh, the town is thought to have been the burial place of Offa of Mercia. Uh, in 919, in the reign of Edward the Elder, a fortress was built in the 10th century. Bedford had a weekly market and a mint before the Danes pillaged it in 1010. Hardly worth going on a pillage just for a mint. <laughs> uh, more recently, the town was made famous by its two factories. So one where they made the cars, Bedford cars, and one where they made the shoes, Bedford vans. <laughs> but, but we've got three local things, I believe. So uh, it's going to be an obvious question. But what, I'll ask John, because you're not local. What's Bedford's telephone code? Oh, I don't know, but I know there's something about mm. it. Yes, it's 01234. Ah. You'll never forget it now. <laughs> yeah. uh, panel, panel chip in as and when you want to. Uh, otherwise, I'm just going to keep talking. <laughs> um, so a couple of famous sons from Bedford include Ronnie Barker and John Le Mesurier. Mm. Back to reference to Dad's off. Le Mesurier was actually a, a, a significant part of comedy history that's little known. Uh, uh, in the year 1940, uh, at the age of 28, he was uh, just doing side work at Repertory Theatre, working with Eric Morecambe. Uh, uh, Morecambe was speaking to the Missouri, saying, I'm, I'm thinking of joining, uh, forming a double act, who should I join it with? Uh, to which the Missouri obviously said, uh, do you think it's wiser? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was entirely a pun, there's no history there at all. I met Ronnie Barker once. Um, uh, my dad put his heating in. <laughs> That's not how I met him. Um, but I was at uh, one known time I was invited to the uh, uh, BBC TV Christmas party when I had a right. pilot on BBC Two or something. Anyway, never got invited again for good reasons. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, oh, that's, that's Ronnie Barker, isn't it? And I thought I'll go over and uh, hello, said hello, my dad put your heating in. And he went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I've got to, yes. Uh, 
So, so that was a good night from him then, was it? Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up, um, I got very drunk and stoned. Um, <laughs> so was, anyway, uh, <laughs> I remember right at the end, I was just lying on the floor, uh, waiting for it to finish. <laughs> and um, I remember looking up and thinking, oh, that's, that's Ben Elton up there. I bet I could touch his shoe from here um, <laughs> without him noticing. Uh, I'm not particularly a fan of it, it was just like while I was there. <laughs> so I reached out and I, I touched Ben Elton's shoe. You, you can talk to me afterwards if you want. <laughs> but he did notice. You touched his soul. Sorry. He looked down with this dreadful look of something like pity. Um, yeah, anyway, I'm still dining out on that anecdote. <laughs> Just, Chips, mainly. <laughs> I mean, interestingly, Bedford has quite an interesting uh, history with weed. And there was a recent police report uh, that came out after sort of a countrywide raid that said that Bedford uh, spends £1 million a week on weed uh, and £2 million on fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> it's a two-to-one ratio. <laughs> it's two wings to a joint. <laughs> but that's genuinely true, apparently. And one in seven people in Bedford smoke weed. Um, the other six, are, of course, are dealers. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, uh, so, I mean, that would explain, you know, I mean, at any given point, or any given, you know, for example, uh, any given sort of Sunday league football match uh, in Bedford, there's at least three people skinning up at half time. Yeah. <laughs> Which would explain the level of football in Bedford <laughs> at this present time. I think that's quite So those three people are just the players, yeah. So yeah. the second half or just the officials in the first half. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so I was alerted to uh, a museum in Bedford called the Panacea Museum, which I guess everyone here is familiar with. I, I didn't know about it before. So it's an interesting building, which is in Castleside, a beautiful Victorian house. Now the Panacea Society had about 2,000 members, mostly women, and they were from all over Europe, North America and further afield, who believed that God was about to bring about a new age, a period of peace and happiness called the Millennium. But we had that in 2000, didn't we? <laughs> so the leader was called Mabel Borltrop, the widow of an English clergyman and mother of four children, but her followers called her Octavia. Now, the Panaceans believed that God was speaking to them through Octavia, so during the 1920s, many followers moved to Bedford to live closer to her, and the community combined the gardens of several properties to form a so-called campus, and it had its own chapel. Now, they believed that the campus was the original site of the Garden of Eden, <laughs> yes, the Garden of Eden was here in Bedford. Now, have uh, you got apple trees here? But anyway, um, there's enough people who probably see a few snakes when they're tripping. Yes, well, yes. So uh, now they also believe that Jesus would return to Bedford, so they kept a house room. You're stunned, aren't you? <laughs> this is apparently true because it's on the internet. Now, that would have been, I think, the best. B&B, wouldn't it? So, like, plenty of towels for him needing to wash people's feet. Uh, or keep the thorn bushes down, bad memories, might induce PTSD. Uh, got a phone installed, telephone number 012345 I mean, he wouldn't need a minibar, would he? Think about it. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm yeah, yes, yes, yes. As long as there's plenty of water supply. Next week, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but if it's definitely missing a rib shot, then. Thank you. Come on, then. Still there, just about. Yeah. <laughs>
I did read that there was a, an offshoot of the Panacea Society called the Karl Marx Society who believe that heaven is a place on earth. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's worth yeah, can make a song of that. <laughs> um, now, the uh, followers uh, believe that Octavia is one of seven prophetic voices to have appeared since the late 1700s, a tradition they call the Visitation. Now, Joanna Southcourt was born in 1749. She was the second prophet of the Visitation, and she published books of prophecies claiming that God had told her to prepare people for the millennium. So in 1804, Southcourt had sealed a selection of her prophecies in a box, and declared it should only be opened in a time of national danger by 24 bishops of the Church of England. And over the decades, the box was kept safe by her believers, ready for when the bishops requested it. So when the First World War began in 1914, many believers thought, well, this must be the predicted national time of danger. So they went round persuading people that they needed to get the bishops of the Church of England to open up this box, but they couldn't get 24 bishops together to do this thing. Uh, so the box has remained unopened to this day in Bedford, kept in secret, uh, first by the members of the Jarrett family, until uh, they kind of died out, and the box is now in some secret location, and only recently been allowed to be photographed. Even. And they spent large amounts of money to campaign to get the bishops to open the box, just open the box. Now personally, I've got, I, I've got a way of getting around this. You just gather together 12 chess sets from C of E properties. You've <laughs> <laughs> got 24 C of E bishops, haven't you? So. Anything else about religious you, you stuff? Have, you have 48 bishops, wouldn't you? Is it not 2 per set? No, no, there's 4, four per set. <laughs> 6 sets! Okay, now, you did the maths, didn't you? Well, there, there is... Well, I don't know if... Have you got any, have you got any more notes on the panacea? Or is it I have, but I'm getting bored with it. But you can carry on. Uh, it's one of the things I don't know if it's in, in your notes, so uh, stop me if it's there, but... I, I, I recall reading uh, or hearing about one of the, the, the prophets, one of the women who had, a, who, who had a, a distinct belief that she couldn't go something like 70 steps from where she lived or the devil would get her. So for the rest of her life, the society took care of her in her home because she was limited to... By she was just lazy, steps. wasn't she? <laughs> I, 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 I wish I could have come up with an excuse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Fitbit's thought of everything now, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be honest, if the dishwasher was 12 steps from the sofa, I'd say to the other half, oh, no, sorry, 10. He'll get me up to 10. Did she just have an ankle bracelet from prison and was embarrassed to mention Anything but the bracelet, you know. Yeah. Was, that, was she in prison from dealing from weeds? Quite probably, yeah. I know her well. So Bedford's probably best associated with John Bunyan. So in 1660, he was actually imprisoned for 12 years in Bedford Gull. He'd violated the 1664 Conventicle Act by holding religious services outside of the established Church of England for 12 years. Buddy Cronenberg. Yeah. <laughs> 12 years a slave, in fact. And I hadn't thought that before. <clears throat> so it was here that he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Can't think of anyone else famous in prison who wrote a book, but uh, anyway. uh, maybe when he was in, he got his feet seen to as well. <laughs> the Pilgrim's Progress is regarded as the first novel written in English. There we go. Uh, the entire book is essentially a narrated dream sequence by the everyman character Christian. Sets off on a journey from his hometown, City of Destruction, to the celestial city on Mount Zion. If only he'd known that the Garden of Eden was in Bedford, he'd have to go so far. It would have been a short book, wouldn't it, really? Um, Apparently there are other locations within the book that are um, sort of modelled on places around Bedford. And there's the... Hold on one sec. 
I did do more research. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Slough of Despond, for instance, which has since become shorthand for a state of desperation, may well have been inspired by the large deposits of grey clay near the Bedford area. So, Bedford is known as the state of depression. <laughs> Cheers, John. I, I, I misread that as being if you're in Slough. Yeah, I think it works. Yeah, it's double edged. Yeah, it's a double edged sword. Yeah. Unlike, you know, the Swindon of Despond. <laughs> Basingstoke of Despond just doesn't have the same ring to it. Anymore. It could still work. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the end of your research. I think what sounds me about it, though, is so I'm saying. I don't know very much about this, but what I've picked up so far is the very first novel in the English language is a book that effectively ends with, and then I woke up and it was all a dream. <laughs> <laughs> but he could do that, surely. <laughs> it's the odd weed as well. It, it was. <laughs> I suppose it was new then. It was new, yeah. And what I love is he got arrested for preaching outside a church um, and then went into prison and wrote a religious allegory in prison, not in a church. It's like being arrested for, I don't know, poisoning your customers and then becoming the chef in prison. <laughs> it's brilliant. This guy was an absolute rebel. He did not give two hoots about anything. And he just, yeah, I suppose he was safe in prison. I mean, where were they going to put him? In prison? You know. <laughs> so I can finally have some time to write my book. You know. Reasonable guy. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Italians. Are there any Italians in tonight? Born Sarah. <laughs> Born Sarah. Born Sarah. So uh, Bedford, so I've read, uh, has the most Italian families of any place in the UK. So 14,000 out of a total population of about 100,000. So we're, we're low on that ratio, it seems, tonight. So after World War II, the town's Marston Valley Brick Company, the largest brick factory in the world, found itself short of labour for the reconstruction boom. So in 1951, the company sent two employees to Naples to recruit 250 men. Sounds terribly dodgy, this. Uh, <laughs> by the early 1960s, the company had recruited more than 7,500 men, mostly from the poorer villages of southern Italy, so Campania, Apulia, Calabria and Sicily. Every recruit had to pass a medical examination in Milan, which is like the opposite end of the country, uh, and was then given a ticket to England if they passed that, and then they were given a bed, often in just a converted prisoner of war camp. Wow, welcome to England. Uh, many Italians worked in the London Brick Company factory. Now, they produced about 70,000 bricks weekly per person. How many fucking bricks did this? <laughs> that is incredible. It was off the internet, admittedly, so I don't, don't believe everything you read off the internet. Now, the largest Italian community was in Bedford, but there were others in Peterborough, Bletchley, Loughborough, and Nottingham. Now, most of the men, they didn't last out their four-year contracts due to loneliness, cold weather, and let's face it, shit English food. <laughs> uh, some of them, when they saw that for the first time, they must have been bricking it. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, uh, maybe that's the effect it had on them, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, so, uh, but, but many did stay, obviously, uh, so they were buying houses, paying for their families' passage to come and join them. Well, they could have gone to Vatican City preaching about the Garden of Eden and got more workers over here. Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, well, maybe, yes, I mean, as Catholics, it, it would have been a, a draw, wouldn't it? Yeah. So Liz Garg, I don't know how to say her name, Liz Garganesis was brought against her will to live in England, so she said in an interview that I read, I didn't like it, I didn't like the food, and most of all, I didn't like the weather. When I got to London to meet my dad, I ran away. Within 10 minutes, I started crying. And when we got to Bedford, it was even worse. <laughs> I could have done something else, I could have had a career. This sounds like someone who's been on the X5. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, the food aspect as well. You come from southern Italy to Bedford. I mean, and your life expectancy goes down by 10 years. Ten years, years. <laughs> and you have a wealth of... Um, the heritage of, of his food there is incredible. And you come to Bedford, where we have the Bedfordshire clangor. <laughs> where somebody had the bright idea of including your hot meal and your dessert in one pastry. <laughs> I mean, that's the most English way of eating a meal I think I've ever imagined. And I can't imagine what they would have thought of that. I mean... And the munchies are making you strange, things. They do, really. I wanted to find out more about the clangor. I actually left like two hours early to drive up here because I was hoping to find somewhere to try one before I got in. I got so delayed on the way up, I couldn't... Don't worry, you won't be able to find one. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought I found one bakery online who said that they sold them, so... uh, Oh, really? uh, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. Unfortunately, it's locked away in some box. Possibly. (laughs) (laughs) Any bishops in? (laughs) (laughs) Any chess sets? (laughs) Checkmates. Historical things. Obviously, it ties into the agricultural past. Yeah, um, Because it's it's a worker's meal, so it's um, similar to, to other things like the Cornish pasty. Uh, the Shire Klanger and the Pembrokeshire Soup Dragon. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, glad there are enough people in this audience that are old enough to get that joke. <laughs> You're making me hungry, Lewis. <laughs> I'm not eating yet. So. Where does Angel Delight come in? <laughs> hey, it's going to be somewhere. <laughs> so apparently many Italians, they had unscrupulous landlords. Uh, uh, see if any of this next portion reminds you of... Uh, things are today. Uh, it was reported that up to 50 people could be crammed into houses designed for two families, and that some landlords even let the same bed to more than one person, taking advantage of the brick workers' shift patterns. Yeah. <laughs> the bed's warm. Mm, weird. Uh, many locals complained that the area was being overrun, and particularly objected to the noise. The mayor observed that an Italian singing in the street as he goes to work at 6.30am is perhaps not appreciated by the rather staid Englishman who wants another hour in bed. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 With the mayor. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so in 1960, matters reached ahead and the local council opposed the further bulk immigration of Italian workers requested by the brickworks, saying there was no room to accommodate them in Bedford in comfort. Either they should stay in hostels or not be invited. Um, the Bedfordshire Times ran numerous articles on Bedford's Italian question. And one councillor said Bedford had reached saturation point. Does that sound very familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so apparently, uh, tell me if this is true or not, but the town currently has an Italian vice consulate. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the local radio station has a weekly programme called Mondo Italiano. Don't listen to it, do we? Who would listen to it? That's you. Um, it's dedicated to its Italian community. And every June, this is true, the local Italian society throws the Bedford Italian <coughs> Festival. It was, yes, it's yes, yes. Oh, Gene, then, is it? <laughs> testing me, you're testing me. The town is decked in green, white, and red, and everyone eats Italian food. So that's, yes. That sounds wonderful. It was sings, yesterday. Sings in Italian as well. What's that, sorry? They sing in Italian. Oh, they sing in Italian. All afternoon. <laughs> All afternoon. And you're still trying to sleep. Right? <laughs> yeah. okay. So we've got about five minutes left. So is there anything the panel wants to say that they did research on? Because I'm sure you did loads of research, didn't you guys? Uh, you want to know O.J. Simpson? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that time you used to live in Bedford. <laughs> We bought a moustache from Bedford once. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That turns out the knife is Italian, not German. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to very briefly then say about John Howard. So he was also from Bedford. The Howard League is named after him. So he was actually born in London. He had a comfortable middle class start to life. 
worked an apprentice, which meant that his income uh, allowed him an apartment, servants, and two horses. So he, he was well off. But he, it's a, a tragedy, though, because he was married twice, both times. His wives died, one in childbirth. So he, he um, established himself as a country gentleman in Bedfordshire. Now, as a non-conformist, despite that, he was appointed as High Sheriff of Bedfordshire, which meant that he was responsible for the county goal, the one, presumably, which Bunyan had been imprisoned in the century before. But he was appalled by the conditions he found inside, so he essentially was responsible for prison reform. But he not only visited Bedford Goal, he thought, well, it must be bad here, but I'll find other goals or prisons where um, things are better and I can maybe take some of those... Uh, suggestions back, but he found it was it was rife. It was everywhere around England and Wales. Then he visited other places in Europe, including Russia, and he found it was the same everywhere. Uh, basically, uh, gaolers were prone to being bribed to receiving favours and profits, and, and poor people they couldn't pay their way out of prison as a result. So this chap almost single-handedly was responsible for prison reform in the 18th century. Um, so not, not a lot of humour in that, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I think rightly so, you should get at least a mention on this podcast. I mean, it's, it's quite impressive, the amount of travelling he did. I mean, yeah. even back then, I mean, it said that he travelled 42,000 miles uh, around the 80,000 kilometres, that's about the same, yes. Yeah. On, on horseback. That's quick, mass. On horseback. <laughs> on well, on horseback. Very quick, yeah. Oh, right. Well, so just not just as a bit of generation, do you know what that is in steps? <laughs> yes, but he travelled travelled yeah. all this way across Europe, across yeah, over to Russia. I mean, he really puts Louis Theroux to shame. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the proclaimers. And the proclaimers. <laughs> and then after all that, John Howard went on to become um, Prime Minister of Australia, I believe. <laughs> Did he walk there? <laughs> on horseback. Uh, and he spent some thirty thousand pounds of his own money in his determination to improve prison conditions. And I don't know what that is in modern-day money, but I'm guessing that's probably in the millions. It's a lot of bricks. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> bricks equivalent. <laughs> so uh, we've actually almost run out of time. So any final words from the panellists before we close? Anything you're desperate to say? I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. I believe the Sainsbury's in Kempston is the first big Sainsbury's. <laughs> Someone told me that. I take it Kempston is local to him. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so excuse yeah. my ignorance. But people yeah. in Kempston know that I'm. The first Safeway was here. The first Safeway. After talking about, 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 about prisons. Yeah. <laughs> Safeway. Good, talk about ending on a high. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but thanks, thanks for coming along. I hope you've both been educated and humoured. But please just thank the guests who came onto this podcast. So we've got uh, Paul Kerr, <laughs> Ben Abling, John Rands, and Simon Munnery. Thanks everyone. It was, it was a heap of fun. I'm looking forward to some food and some grass later. There's um, <laughs> uh, a final on this day here, 22nd of July. So Jimmy Hill was born on this day in 1928. He was a footballer, chairman of Coventry, Charlton and Fulham FC, and of course a football pundit uh, with the large chin. That's what I'm talking about. So some of his wise words included, he, that's David Beckham, has two feet, which a lot of players don't have nowadays. <laughs> if England are going to win this match, they're going to have to score a goal. <laughs> uh, despite the rain, it's still raining here at Old Trafford. <laughs> And the final one, in the words of the old song, it's a long time from May to December, but, you know, 
It's an equally long time from December to May. <laughs> Thank you and good night.